Well, John, we are into episode three of season three, which is about the beginning of Jesus, and uh, we've not yet talked about Jesus too much just yet because we were talking about John the Baptist, <laughs> which is so important to the beginning of Jesus, of course, in his ministry, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely true. We can't really begin without touching on John, and, and I, I think hopefully our, our listeners will have really enjoyed engaging in it and giving that a little bit of air time. I do tend to think... We, we skate over John a little bit too thinly, and there's a lot going on there. So it was nice to hang around that for a couple of episodes. I really enjoyed it. Yes, absolutely. And it does help us because the way that John leads into Jesus' ministry and all of that sort of background helps us where we're going to talk about today, which is mm. the baptism of Jesus. And so if we were to begin here... There's, there's work we've not done, which helps understand how Jesus is being presented by Luke, actually, to his readers mm-hmm. and to help us then understand Jesus. So um, yeah. we're going to jump straight into Luke chapter 3 and just yeah. a couple of verses in that chapter that you're going to read for us, uh, John. Sorry. I would be honored to. It's a beautiful passage and it starts at verse 21, Luke chapter 3. And it says this, uh, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the Son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And you don't want to continue with this horrendously long <laughs> list of names that follows. <laughs> no, no, I got I got the difficult names last time, mate. So, so we're not we're not going to agree. For for our for our listeners, it is essentially Luke's genealogy. They're taking us all the way back to mm. Adam and to God. So so that's a, a pretty exciting genealogy. So and and maybe a question I would just want to leave hanging there. Maybe we'll come back to this in either later in this episode or in the next episode. But there is a question to ask, why does Luke choose now to bring a genealogy, right? So we we would probably read Matthew first because it's the first gospel. And um, so we come to that and he begins with the genealogy. That sort of makes sense to us, doesn't it? Like here's the here's where this guy's come from. And and then you get Luke, you get his birth story, you get all of these miraculous accounts around the birth of Jesus, all of these sort of interesting things happening. He's been to the temple. We're introduced to his cousin now in his ministry. He gets baptized. And 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 I don't mean this irreverently, but somebody could be forgiven for thinking, oh, did he then realize, oh, I, I forgot to put a genealogy in. <laughs> I better just do it now. And and of course, if you if you've read the opening verses of Luke's gospel and the way Luke positions his gospel, mm-hmm. then of course the conclusion would be no, he hasn't forgotten. Mm-hmm. This is a, a very well-managed insertion and a very carefully designed insertion for, mm-hmm. to, to help with the story. And of course, what's fascinating, it is a link between the the words of the Father, the anointing of Jesus, and then the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and mm-hmm. and of course being challenged in that ministry straight off the bat mm-hmm. by uh, the adversary in the wilderness. So so it's a, it's a very, very interesting moment to have that insertion. And, and that's probably helpful for, you know, if you're listening in your car and you've not got your Bible open while driving, which we want to encourage Bible reading, but we don't want to encourage driving while reading your Bible. <laughs> so what's important is over the next few episodes as we, we talk about this, you do have this baptism, then you have this genealogy, then you have Jesus's temptations. So that's your sort of 40,000 feet view of what we're dealing with right now. And I think it's helpful to bear in mind, just as you you said there, John, that this is the this is the sequence we're dealing with. This is what's happening. It's like, hey, here's John the Baptist. Jesus is baptized by John. This, the events we'll talk about today that relate to that are all to do with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Here's a genealogy. Here's a temptation in the desert. And then he's going to turn up in the synagogue ready to begin his first sermon. And and it would be great for you as you listen to the various parts of these episodes to think through how they're all held together by 
by Luke. Yeah, very, very, very good. And and again, it's recognizing. I'm sure our our listeners are getting into this if they're not already. It's recognizing that that the gospel writers have a clear agenda as they're moving through. These aren't just random thoughts and stories that are plugged together, mm-hmm. but there is that they are taking us on a journey, and and the journey is not only to show the magnificence of Jesus, of course, as the center of the story, but a particular can we say agenda that that each gospel writer has in presenting Jesus and the story of Jesus in a particular way to help us all as as followers. So yeah, very good. So let's let's jump into this particular text then that we've read Luke 3:21 through to 23. And we'll spend a bit of time in this John and then that will kind of push us out from from there. So 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 Jesus turns up to be baptized and you actually see if you followed the last couple of episodes there's a slight chronological overlap here for a second because we ended in the last sort of place of of John being locked up and put in prison but that now we're talking about Jesus being baptized which we know from other reports is by John so Luke's just sort of almost giving you John's story in a little a little kind of nice contained few paragraphs but this moment now about Jesus' baptism, this is happening before John gets locked up. And so this yes. is so Jesus yes. has not been baptized by somebody else. So yeah, so where do you want to where do you want to jump in on on that? Well I think a couple of just beautiful normal type things to, to recognize there is that I love how Luke introduces us to us. It's there's something of normalcy here in in the text. Luke Luke tells us when all the people were being baptized, mm-hmm. Jesus was baptized too. So 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 there's a sense in which the other gospel writers help us with this, especially John, where where you get a recognition of Jesus by John the Baptist. But mm-hmm. but there is a sense in which this is a moment of a routineness in the ministry of John. People are getting used to his message, his baptism of repentance. There are clearly crowds and other people being baptized. And then Jesus sort of out of the obscurity of that crowd enters into this this amazing moment. And of course, it is a spectacular moment. But sometimes we get we lose the spectacular moment in the ordinariness of this moment that that actually the father speaks, the spirit comes. But Jesus, at one respect, is one of many being baptized that day, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and he steps into the ordinariness of this moment, and we see something supernatural, spectacular, and other happening. And I think it's a beautiful, without without overcooking it, I think there's a gorgeous motif there, this idea that the supernatural wants to invade the ordinary moments of our lives, wants to come into the everyday. And and there's a sense in which Jesus parks into that everyday experience and yet into that routineness, something of the glory and majesty and power and and grace of the Lord is demonstrated in this experience. And I, I just, I love the context of it, David. I love, before we get to the, to the magnificence of this moment, there is a normalcy to it, which is quite beautiful. And I think it leans into the the incarnation. It leans into this transcendent and intimate God, this God who is other and yet he is one of us. It's just an incredible idea. I wonder if the idea of the normalcy of it actually maybe helps with even a very subtle sort of theological question that's raised, right? So Jesus comes to be baptized while all the other people are being baptized. And perhaps some people think, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> because when we were introduced to this story, John the Baptist was in the desert proclaiming a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sin. <laughs> and and so somebody might be thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> why, why is Jesus turning up for a baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Why is Jesus turning up for a baptism of repentance, and that would be a fair question to ask. I, th- I think, wouldn't mm. it? And yeah, but the way we ask questions can be can be really important. I, I think, and sometimes we we have a tendency of starting in the wrong place to ask the question. And, and I think so. We think, well, are we suggesting that Jesus was a sinner? Are we suggesting that Jesus had some things he needed forgiven from? 
But the way that you phrased the question or the conversation just there, I think, actually leads us into a more healthy way to ask this question, that Jesus is participating in this in this, could I say, reform movement that's happening. Now, we talked about this in the last couple of episodes, that that what John the Baptist was doing was creating a, a location of God's mercy and grace outside of the temple. And, yeah. and so my way of reading this would be that Jesus isn't going to, um, what do you call it, to be baptized by John because he needs forgiveness for his own sins. But he's rather participating in what's going on and is symbolized by John. And I think, I think Matthew, Matthew's gospel helps us a little bit with this because when Matthew gets to the point that Jesus gets baptized, he says, oh, Jesus does this to fulfill justice or to fulfill yes. righteousness, depending how you, yes. how you translate it, which I think connects to this idea here that Jesus is saying, yeah, this that God is breaking out from the exclusivity of the temple, which would be a very, very Lucan motif that we're going to see at many yeah, points in Luke's sure. gospel. But then the flip side of it, what it makes me think, John, I remember when I was a young student encountering this and being very troubled by why is Jesus being baptized for repentance? And then, and then it struck me many years later that that this is bigger community approval. And, and, and here's where I found myself realizing, yeah, Jesus probably went to the temple in his life, and he probably went to the synagogue, and he would mm-hmm. definitely have participated in the Day of Atonement rituals and feasts and, and fasts and all this. And I can't imagine Jesus saying, well, sorry, sorry, mom, I'm not going to that because it's not necessary for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so, so sure. you've actually they've got this broad picture of, and I love that, that's why the way you said it, but just the normality of Jesus participating with what everybody else is doing and thereby approving of that normality Indeed. and supporting that. Totally. And and I think I think there is a powerful affirmation of John also in this and the, the way that John is preparing the way. So there's a sense in which by submitting himself to baptism, the baptism of John, though there is absolutely no hint that Jesus is is getting baptized because of a repentance issue, there is absolutely 100% an affirmation of this as a message and the affirmation of John himself as the harbinger. Mm. And I think that is that is crucially important. And, and there's also, I, I think there's a beautiful deeper idea even within this that somehow it, the, the humility required mm. to be baptized in public in such a way is also something attitudinal, David. I, I think mm. it's saying something of the profound attitude of the Son of God in flesh himself, that he mm. is submitting himself to the Jordan. I, I I hear, I don't want to stretch this too far, of course, but I hear the nuance, I hear the echo of Naaman the leper refusing to get baptized in the Jordan because we've got rivers that are better back in Syria. <laughs> Why on earth am I getting why on earth am I being asked to dip in such a filthy river? And and there's that sense in which this man of substance, this man of standing, this man of position goes, there's no way I'm going into that. And here's God in flesh. I mean, here's mm. here's the creator and the sustainer of the universe submitting himself to be dunked in this river mm. by this wild man. And there is something of not only the affirmation of John, but I think there's something of the prophetic found attitudinal position that mm-hmm. Jesus is taking here of of incredible humility which yes. i think then if we pick up if we pick up the words of isaiah i think he's leaning into he's grabbing hold of this servant of the lord idea this mm-hmm. I, I i've come to fulfill the purposes of god i haven't come in the in in the normal expected way of of conquest, but I have come yes. to conquer by service, by humility, by surrender. And I think that this moment of stepping into the Jordan and allowing John to baptize him is an incredible attitudinal humility, which mm. which is a marker for the rest of his ministry and, and what yes. he continues to do. I think there's something really beautiful in the in the heart of that. There there really there really, really is. And I think that's that contrast then from what you're saying there to what happens next becomes quite interesting, doesn't it? Then mm. because <laughs> because I totally agree with everything you've said that it's normal, it's approval, 
But then as he was praying, heaven was opened. You kind of get the vibe that now we've left normal. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and, and again, I think that is really magnificent. I, mm. I think this, w- what we're seeing in the Gospel of Luke all the way through up to this point is, is the ordinary inter, interject, inter splicing, intertwining mm. with the supernatural and the glorious. You've got Zechariah mm. in the temple praying, the angel shows up. You've got Mary doing her thing, the angel shows up. You've got you've got Anna and Simeon praying and prophesying in the temple over 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 the child Jesus. You've got these mm. beautiful moments of ordinariness and then into that comes the supernatural. Here's here's another of those moments. As Jesus was mm. praying, my goodness, there's a thought. I mean, what was he praying when when he entered yeah. into that water? But again, yeah. that that disposition of humility positions him, and then suddenly heaven opens, and two dramatic things take place, which are spectacular and supernatural and out of the ordinary and not expected. And it's all about positioning this this God in flesh for mm. this incredible ministry that we're we're now about to observe as he launches forward. I think that's what actually is broader going on in this whole this whole section, isn't it? This this sense of of this connection of heaven and earth and everything like that. And I and I think I often think about what this does to everybody standing around as well. And that and that I think starts to unpack as as we lean into these these verses, isn't it? That there's there's definitely there's something going on which is helping people join some dots, mm-hmm. helping people sort of make some things that are, that are going on, and and then we get this um, this Holy Spirit narrative coming again, and and I think it's easy to then start to think forward about the role of the Holy Spirit in Luke and then in Acts, but of course the Holy Spirit's been this key player throughout the story that's got us to this point in the narrative hasn't it i mean he is all over the first four chapters of luke mm. and there is a there is a saturation of charismatic activity mm. that we've already experienced and seen so so if you're following the the sort of the pattern of luke the trajectory of luke then this is mm. this is sort of not a shocking moment this this mm. sort of will feel strangely to use the word again normal in the context of this we have seen the intervention of the spirit before we have seen the holy spirit come upon people touch people fill people already in the gospel of luke and now he engages in a dramatic unique way mm. on to jesus himself at this moment so it's it's not a sudden new introduction this yeah. is another sort of line in this mm. in this holy spirit saturated narrative so far there's a few moments kind of little few verses that that i think we want to jump in and look at some other texts and the first that i just would love to draw a parallel with and i'd be curious your thoughts on john is is well i mean let me just clarify what i mean by that i think when luke's shaping some of this narrative he th- there's there's expectations and prophetic language shaping the the background mm. of this isn't there and mm. we've seen this in the magnificat we've seen this in uh, zechariah's song uh, i was just looking at isaiah 10 just towards the end of isaiah 10 the beginning of isaiah 11 if you can sort of hold everything that we've talked about over the last two uh, episodes and then you know where we're at right now. Think about think about this. Isaiah ten verse thirty three says, "Look, the sovereign, the Lord of hosts, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The tallest trees will be cut down, the lofty brought low. He will hack down the thickets of a forest with an axe." And I wonder if if, some, if somebody goes, "Oh, I'm an axe." Yeah, John the Baptist was talking about things being cut down and 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 threshed, and he was he was sort of coming in ready to go, wasn't he, Sir John? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Look at John in Luke chapter three, verse nine. The axe is already at the root of yeah, the trees, the right? Mm. And so, so I find myself wondering. Isaiah is such a huge text for the people of Israel, particularly at this point in history, but still remains. When John's talking about axe at the tree, you know, are people thinking, "Oh, wait a minute, this sounds a bit." 
a bit like Isaiah in, in, in chapter 10, right? But mm-hmm. then what's really interesting, if you'll permit me bouncing around a little bit, so this axe is, is going to be, hack, the Lord's axe is coming to clear out the, and, and even, and Lebanon with its majestic trees will fall. So, so even mm-hmm. the power centers are going to be affected by this axe. And I can't think that a person even like Luke, who's aware of these prophetic texts, isn't drawing parallels between Jesus and and what's going to happen here. But yeah. then you get this line at the very next line, beginning of Isaiah 11, a shoot shall come mm. out from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. So there's this, there's this clearing happens by the Lord, including the big power centers being brought down. But a shoot, one of these, one of these hacked off stumps, and it will be, and it will be the one of Jesse will, yes. will have this shoot. Of course, Jesse being David's father, and just in a few verses, you're going to read this genealogy of Jesus. And guess whose name appears yes. there? That one of Jesus's relatives, ancestors, yeah. is is Jesse. So really fascinating. Then, so so John's. If you lay these, two, my my Bible app actually allows me to do this. But if you lay Luke three next to Isaiah ten and the beginning of chapter eleven, you can see John the Baptist talking about the you know, threshing floors yep. and the chopping of things down. End of Isaiah 10 is doing the same thing. Now we have a little bit of this, you know, root from the, from, from, from the line of Jesse. And then Isaiah 11 verse 2, the Amazing. spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit yes. of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And then really interestingly, just verse five, the righteous shall be the belt righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, faithfulness the belt around his loins, and the wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard lie down with, with the goat. It's so so like this is a really significant passage in Isaiah about the hope for the future. And I just you, know, you can get a little crazy with parallels in, in the New Testament, can't you? But these just seem to fit sure. really nicely together that you can't help but think I, I, I think I think we're supposed to go look at this passage. Absolutely. No, no, uh, absolutely. I, I, I would agree. And again, it's it's leaning back into what we've reflected on before. It's that reading backwards. Mm. And if you read the end of Isaiah 10 into 11, mm. backwards from the baptism of Jesus and the language of John and, and what happens at the baptism of Jesus, you're going, at the very least, you're going, oh, that's interesting. And maybe more than that, you're recognizing it's more than interesting. There is there is a powerful prophetic connection here mm-hmm. that is being made. Not obvious when we read Isaiah 11 on its own, but becomes obvious as we read Isaiah through the lens of the ministry and, and work of Jesus. And of course, we, we do get this life of the Spirit, coming of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. And it's not simply a, a Spirit to, to come on him, to empower him, but to give him a, a range of application and ability in ministering to the, the, the whole strata of the society that he's about to touch and, and speak to and minister to. And that whole sort of sense, language of Isaiah 11 there, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor and mm. decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Again, that really does fit with, with Luke's understanding mm. of, of Jesus, this, this, this Lord of the margins, this, this God committed to status reversal, this, this God who is even announced by the poor in mm. terms of his birth and who grows up in a relatively obscure context. Mm. And yet, as a son of man, he seeks and saves the marginalized, the lost, mm. those who are, are being cast out by society. So there's a beautiful um, connection there, absolutely. And, and again, it's the value of reading backwards mm. and allowing some of these magnificent passages to light up for us in the light of Jesus. Yes. And they, they, they do connect. And it's worth repeating that sometimes when you talk about reading backwards, it sounds like you're asking a lot of the reader. And mm-hmm. I think that probably for you and I, we are asking a lot of each other you know, to, to, you know, to, to, to pick up these, these nuances. But, but these are the texts that 
that everybody's marinated in in Jesus's right. world. So it's, right. this is like I, I have some friends that are big fans of Marvel movies, and and they can watch. You know, if I watch a Marvel movie with them, they'll go, "Oh, by the way, that's an allusion to yeah. this over here." They get mm -hmm. all of those allusions. Absolutely. Well, imagine, imagine a culture that takes Isaiah more seriously than Marvel movies. <laughs> so people get those nuances. You can't just throw away certain certain lines no. and not and people not go, wait a minute, I know what that's from. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, it's one hundred percent right. And and of course, for us, we're we're not marinated in that. We aren't. That this isn't our natural default. Uh, I have sat in those Marvel movies and had to have various members of my family explain what the heck is going on. And at one level, at one level, I just want to go and watch the movie, right? I just just leave me alone. Let me enjoy the movie. It gives them a brain arrest for five minutes. I can turn my phone off and just enjoy it. No, no, but Dad, I didn't come here to study. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And 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 there is a, a tremendous sort of analogy there in terms of the Bible. One at one sense we can read Luke chapter three and Luke chapter four and know nothing about Isaiah. And it's still magnificent. And oh, yes, you still enjoy the movie. And it's still oh, that's cool. But then if you're prepared to to connect the dots, then suddenly that little line in the movie becomes, whoa, that's loaded. That's yes. amazing. That's deeper than what it comes across. Yes. And and that is that that is the and I know this isn't easy for all of us, but that is the call of every follower of Jesus. That's the call that we we mustn't be lazy with these glorious texts. We mustn't mm. simply settle for the abridged version. But yeah. but we must recognize that that just as the genealogy in Luke connects Jesus to to centuries of history, mm. so the appearance of Jesus is connected to centuries of teaching, prophetic ministry, mm. uh, understanding and expectation. This is not random. This is not mm. just another event. These are all profoundly connected together. Mm. And, and and when we see that something, I think something really lights up within us. And we've, we've had the joy of seeing some of those things. We thought, wow, I've never seen that before. Incredible. And and some of these things are just like you say they're illuminating, aren't they? They just bring a range of color. It's mm -hmm. it's I don't want to use the wrong metaphor to describe it, but but like you say, you can read Luke three twenty one to twenty three, and it is marvelous as a standalone, right? Mm -hmm. But. But it's like, well, let me say it like this: it's like it's like you're watching it, but your internet connection's not great, so it, it's not in <laughs> HD. And then, and then, and then, some you arrive at somebody's house, and all of a sudden, your Wi-Fi connects to their super fast Wi-Fi, and I, wait a minute, it's in 4K now, and uh, yeah. and and it's not that you couldn't follow it and enjoy it when it was a little bit pixelated and that, but 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 all of a sudden, it comes alive in in, in new yeah. in new clarity when you can start to overlay. Or read backwards, which is a beautiful phrase. I love that. I love that way of that way of describing it, John. So, so yes. So, so the Holy Spirit's on him. Let's let's just keep looking at the text a little bit, and and so that's carrying a lot of weight and symbolism for what mm. is going on here. Do you, have, do you have any thoughts about this this little line that in bodily form, like like a dove? I mean, what's where do you go with something like that? Well, it it is it is unique to look that so luke is is showing us here that that you've got an embodiment of the holy spirit in this in this moment it, when you compare it to the other the other gospels no other gospel writer quite puts it like that and the, there's i i think for me there's a couple of things that that grab me about that i think for luke there is an importance around the holy spirit that really is not an optional extra it's not an add-on to the text, but something that's seen very importantly. And and it could be in some ways the physicality of this description is about getting us to understand that just as, and I don't want to overcook this, but just as God the Son is incarnated into physical form. So we see a sort of a spirit carnation here that the Holy Spirit is incarnated, not not in the in the strictest sense, but he takes a physical form. Mm -hmm. And engaging with the physical form of God the Son, and you get something very, very solid, very tangible 
very physical, very identifiable in the work and person of the Holy Spirit. He's not he's not mystical and far off, but he has now come near into the context of this. And I and I think that that's that, that there's a sense in which I I think that sits there. Luke doesn't want us to miss this, and the the Holy Spirit could have just come and gone and and in a in a relatively non-visible sense and yet we mm. see him and and of course reading forward into the book of acts there is there is not a direct parallel but certainly a connection that on that first outpouring of the spirit on the gathered followers of Jesus uh in acts chapter 2 we have lots of physicality mm-hmm. going on you've got wind you've got fire you've got of course the the sort of speaking another languages which is the the one the ones that sort of is the most famous aspect but if you yes. think of the wind and the fire they are dynamic physical expressions yes. of the spirits coming and again is that we don't want to sort of hunt down the physicality we don't want to start worshiping fire or worshiping wind or keeping doves as pets or anything like that but mm-hmm. it's the sense of this is this is presented to us in a deeply physical, impactive, dynamic uh, way that we should pay attention mm. that the Holy Spirit is among us. And I think I think in in sort of those things there's a, there's a little reflection worth considering. Have, have you anything to add to that? Have you got some thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I mean, so just just to clarify for anyone that's just tracking with what John's saying, of course we we're not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't appear at Jesus's baptisms in the other Gospels, but it's the way that that Luke yeah. phrases it, isn't it? The in bodily form, he say. Yeah. If you were to if you were to read Mark, you might get the impression that this is maybe a bit of a vision or just a, a way of trying to. Uh, but Luke definitely wants to say something. It's this language of the bodiliness that, that you're picking up on, which I think yeah. is. Is really interesting. I, I've often wondered about the symbolism of the dove. The doves get a lot of good press in in the West, don't they? And I remember somebody saying to me once, "It's funny that we that we we don't like pigeons unless the pigeon is white." <laughs> and, um, and all of a sudden, so I, like I remember, I remember being being at a funeral once, and and some doves were released at the, the graveside, and I remember having this sort of strange moment of how everybody was like, oh, this is a beautiful moment. And I remember thinking, if they were pigeons, this would not be a beautiful <laughs> moment. And, uh, and, and as I understand it, there's, there's not a hugely significant difference biologically between doves and pigeons. Just, yep. so, and, and then in, in, in this sort of Jewish context, the doves are, are the offering that poor people bring to the temple, yep. as we see even happen in Jesus' own life. So yep. I find myself curious and i have this is just more of my own musings john because i don't have answers for this i have suspicions but that when the holy spirit does appear in bodily form he appears like a lowly not Mm. very significant animal now my suspicion in western tradition is that the reason that we really like doves is because of this exact text Right. Mm-hmm. So I think I think Luke is responsible for a great piece of PR work <laughs> for 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 doves. And sorry, I mean that. I mean, but that sounds more irreverent than I meant it to be. Forgive me. But I think the reason that people like doves, I think the reason mm-hmm. that people have doves at funerals to be released, is because of this exact text that they become mm-hmm. symbolic of spirit. They become symbolic of something of something spiritual. I think without this particular text, I think a lot of people are going. Well, they're just. They're just white pigeons. Why? Why? And we don't like pigeons really that much. They're they're sort mm. of not very nice. So, and as a result of that, we think of doves as fancy and pure and spiritual. So we we read this text as modern people go, oh yeah, the spirit came down as a dove. I wonder, John. I just wonder if you were reading this in the first century, if you might go. Like 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 a, like a dove. <laughs> you know, well, that's that's not that's not how I would expect God to appear, and yep. I, I can't think of a comparative modern example that wouldn't sound too offensive to us. But do you yeah. get what I'm? Well, and actually, maybe one of the ways is how would you read this text if it said the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a pigeon? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right, and and I think it was one of the things I suppose I was trying to dig into without it sounded too weird i i think you've got 
God the Son in flesh, standing in a river, humbly submitted himself to the to the pathway of a servant. This is a radical moment that most people won't understand until years and years later. This will be understood. And, yes, they, and they're watching I, this and going, what's actually happening around us just actually, now? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you and I and people like us and others have studied these texts, and I my mouth drops open in awe mm. when I think of who is in the water, what he's submitting himself to and what's going on. Mm. And then you get the Holy Spirit coming in bodily form and, and in a form which, which might raise some eyebrows. But again, you get something of not only the physicality of the moment, God entering into the physicality of our world, which I think mm. is an unmissable motif here, mm-hmm. but also the humility of the form, yes. human form and the form of a dove. And there's something really powerful. And of course, for, for me, David, I can't help but also hear the nuance of Genesis 1 here. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you think about Genesis 1, nice. it says, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God. Some translations have moved, mm. some have hovered over that. And it's the, it's the word that Rahaf and, and it, it literally is the idea of, of hovering or trembling or moving. Now this mm. could be just me and you pushing this far too hard, but here, here you have a spectacular creative moment. God, Bereshit bara Elohim, God, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He steps into a moment of time and starts to do something. But before he speaks the word, before the Father speaks, the Spirit hovers. The Spirit, as it were, is moving, whatever that means. We're not quite sure exactly what the hovering, trembling, moving sort of means. But Mm. you've got this moving of the Spirit in some way before then, and God said in verse 3. So before Mm. the words of the Father, you've got this hovering, trembling, moving of the Spirit. Now, Mm. that that could be, we could be about to read far too much into this, but, but I can't help but notice the pattern in Luke mm. 3, that before the Father speaks, it's the Spirit who comes on Jesus in this physical form. And of course, if he comes in the physical form of a bird, there is mm. a sense in which there is a hovering, a trembling of the wings. The Spirit has to behave in such a way that there is a some form of hovering action over and around Jesus before the Father speaks these words. And mm. and in two momentous moments that change the world, the creation of the world, and then mm. the redemption of the world in, in the life of Jesus, we have a spectacular spirit moment, then word moment, which we, mm. we haven't even got to yet, but spirit moment and word moment. And we have a spirit moment and then a word moment about to happen at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in a river, in the wilderness. Do you know, it's it's all, you're going, there's something, I think there's something amazing going on here. Uh, I don't want to overcook it and ruin it, but neither do I want to ignore it because, because it seems like there's a connection between Genesis 1 and the baptism of Jesus. When we talk about connections, when you're reading backwards, I don't think you often need to get too stressed about these mm. things, do you? There can mm. be a sense of, so are you telling me that Luke was definitely thinking this? No, I'm not. we're not saying that Luke was definitely thinking this, but it's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's kind of, and, and if the net result of this is it makes us go, oh, oh, isn't that, that's pretty cool what God might be doing there. Then, then that just opens our hearts up to what, you know, to what is going on. So, you, you know, you, and, and sometimes, and was Luke thinking of this? Maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're so deeply immersed in a particular culture, like like here's something I know. I had this old old uh, friend, as in a friend who was very old. And one of the things I loved about this man was he loved scripture and he would talk and read the Bible all the time. The net result was, and I, and I, and I mean this with, I mean, I mean this with the deepest respect because I, I when he, when you talk to him about anything, 
it kind of sounded biblical. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? That he he was so. I think I think the Bible was probably not far off all, all that he read. So even just a regular conversation, you could hear allusions to bits of the Bible. If you asked him advice, it was biblical advice that come out. But he wouldn't cite chapter and verse. It just was no. like the way he formed and thought Sorry. about things. Yeah. So when you're talking about reading backwards, we're not necessarily imagining Luke anachronistically sat at a desk, are we, with the with an open copy of a scroll next to him? Mm-hmm. It it might just be leaking out of him that these So just to sort of set something up for the next sentence, Isaiah forty two, verse five, right? Thus says God the Lord, who created heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. And I've given you a covenant to the people and a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind and bring out prisoners from dungeons and from prisoners who sit in darkness. Now, that's probably flashing a few lights on people's dashboards based on what we've just been talking about over the last few episodes. But notice Isaiah 42 verse 5, creation of God, spirit mm-hmm. being given to people. So so again, if you're thinking about what John was saying, a beautiful reflection on creation, at very least, Isaiah can see the connection between God, the creator, and the giving of spirit to people. So so this is not, and this I mean this to honor what you've said, John, <laughs> this is not a John Andrews unique connection. <laughs> this, is a, yeah. this is a deeply biblical connection to say what we see in the story of creation of the forming of things and the creation of things and the presence of spirit are are deeply intermeshed in the Jewish scriptures. So, so there's a part of me when you do that sort of stuff, what you were saying just then, it's almost kind of hard to imagine people not drawing that connection. Yeah. Not yeah. feeling and seeing that. You know, you you've been you've been taught it from school. <laughs> Make these connections, people, spirit and creation, spirit and creation. So now where that gets interesting, John, is that the spirit f- comes down in this bodily form and and then we get this voice, this mm. voice from heaven. You mm. are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. <laughs> such a, mm. such a, such a cool uh, moment. This little, these few insights that we have in scripture where you just get this voice that just mm. brings, brings the authority uh, two things. And there's lots we could say about this, but while it's fresh in our minds, and I was being a little cheeky drawing the Isaiah 42 verse 5 connection there that we did about spirit and creation. But if someone was to just roll five verses back, just if you need more proof that Luke might be drawing connections for us, Isaiah 42 verse 1 here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street, but a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench, and he will faithfully bring forth justice. I mean, just so <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of these kind of the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, isn't it? Because, because you've got this Isaiah 42 verse one, right through to where I read there, verse seven, again, feels like probably something waiting here. That spirit, creation, voice of God, what is voice saying? You're my son. This is this is all messianic text now. There's that, and that's the sort of right. little shift that I feel that now we're getting this rooted in creation and God. But the text that we're looking at, seeing the connections between Luke and Isaiah, is a text about God's Messiah. And I just right. wonder if the I, I, I'm convinced the first readers know this. I'd love to be in. I'd love to hear what people were saying standing by the side of the Jordan. Indeed, absolutely, and and I think I think that is. Uh, a magnificent connection that these words from the Father, which uh, we're about to lean into, uh, these words of the Father again, they are loaded. They they seem like sort of there's a normalcy about them, in that they sound like the sort of thing a father would say, and yet <laughs> every facet of the statement of the Father is loaded with a profound yeah. weight 
from the scriptures, from the Tanakh itself, which is all about the affirmation of the one now standing in the Jordan and Mm -hmm. the confirmation that what he is about to do, he is doing with the full authority Mm -hmm. of the Father as he goes forward. And it's a very, very exciting prospect indeed. And, And that's important for Jesus but it's also it's also important for everybody else as well, isn't it? There's, there's this double level that there's the, there's this sense of the affirmation of Jesus in his relationship with the Father, which of course we know that Jesus has this very healthy prayer life. You see this in the Gospels, but there is that sense of what has Jesus heard? Indeed between one and the text is going to tell us this in the next verse. And one of these beautiful Lucan understatements that you get this, this voice, you're my son whom I love. I'm well pleased. And, and Jesus was 30. Yes. <laughs> so it seems like quite a quick change there, but in the preceding 30 years, what has Jesus heard mm. from the father? I've sometimes mm. meditated on this, John, and I have no, I have no profound insights, but, but I think what Luke is trying to show us, is that Jesus relies on the Holy Spirit in the same way that we rely on the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry requires the Holy Spirit. And I don't think Luke is trying to give you the impression that Jesus at 13 years old used to sit in his bedroom and hear God talk to him. I, I think, I would could I say it like this, that how has, how has Jesus related to the Father in the previous 30 years? I think we saw that at the temple at 12 by engaging in scripture, by, mm-hmm. by, by praying the same way as you and I engage with the father. Mm-hmm. So is there a level that this is the first time that Jesus hears the father's voice mm-hmm. of approval in his earthly life? And that might be a really, really obvious point, but I just wonder if we've often thought about, we don't know lots about Jesus in the previous 30 years but what if his previous 30 years were not massively dissimilar to the average human's previous 30 years, despite the origins and all that? I mean, am I, am I, uh, am I to be stoned as a heretic, John? No, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't stone you as a heretic. I think, I think some people will, will maybe get nervous around what we're touching at because, because I think what Luke represents is, and all the gospel writers to a degree lean into it is that, is the utter humanity of Jesus. And what is fascinating here is that these are the first recorded words of the Father to Jesus in the Gospels. Mm. So we are we are sort of speculating around the silence of those of those silent years where Jesus, you know, at the end of Luke chapter two, disappears as a 12-year-old and then reappears as a 30-year-old, the 18 years of silence, which are just, I think they're spectacular, even though we know relatively little about them, they are spectacular mm. years. And then as he emerges out of that obscurity and silence, he is he is greeted by these words of profound affirmation mm. from the Father. So whatever Jesus has heard or is hearing from the Father privately, here at the baptism, we are getting... It's almost like we've been we're being allowed into something profoundly intimate. I, and again, th- let's finish here where where we started. There's it, and this is this is the sort of this is the the paradox of the baptism of Jesus. There's something very normal about this event. He, all the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too, and yet it mm. feels now that we like we are in the middle of something yeah. profoundly intimate. And it's like, and it's like the father has drawn back some curtains and allowed us to peek in on something, in order to help us understand the workings of this magnificent community God, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit community, that not only came together for creation and came together for the establishment of a people on earth, but but now I've come together in a redemptive purpose to save the mm. world. And it feels like, whoa, should should we be watching this? Should we be here? Yeah. Or or, is it, or or am I am I supposed to be getting this? And and there is something tender, intimate, and glorious about this encounter that we are now mm. 
uh, seeing and experiencing in, in these magnificent words that we're about to explore. I, I do think it's a narrative intention of Luke to show us that Jesus operates through the Holy Spirit and therefore yeah. that we too can operate through the Holy Spirit. If it's all silence, but the implication appears to be that Jesus is not hearing the voice of the Father throughout his own childhood, right? Mm -hmm. He is rooted in scripture, rooted in mm -hmm. prayer. And, and that the first thought might be, oh, that sounds a little shocking. But of course, the Bible is at pains to show us that Jesus is fully human. And, and fully human doesn't mean you're wandering around a foot off the ground, able to talk and hear from the voice of God every moment that you do. That, and, and I mean, church history has had huge discussions and doubled down at every occasion on the full humanity of Jesus and nothing yes. less than that. Think about it like this, John. That means that when we meet Jesus at the start of his public ministry, his training his relationship with the Father, his way of understanding what God has called us to be in the world is fully available to all of us. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that actually, so what did Jesus do for his education? Well, you could do the same thing, right? You could, yes. you could root yourself in the scriptures, root yourself in prayer. And actually, once you maybe remove the initial shock, I mean, that's, that sounded a little weird, it actually has deeply encouraging things, which I think is actually part of what Luke is trying to help us to see, is that Jesus is going to perform this ministry through a spirit that is available to to all people that would call on God's name. And I think I think that's beautiful and encouraging, humbling <laughs> as well, but beautiful all the same. Absolutely, absolutely. And the same scriptures that were available to Jesus are in some ways can I say this carefully and reverently, more available to us in terms yeah. of the forms that we can access them and the fullness that we can access them in. Yes. And the same Holy Spirit that came to Jesus that day in bodily form is the same Holy Spirit that filled the believers in the book of Acts and the same Holy Spirit who wants to engage with me and you in the 21st century with all its wonderful craziness, weirdness, and wonderment. <laughs> and 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 there is a uniqueness to Jesus that, that does stand apart, and yet there mm -hmm. is an intimacy and, and commonality in Jesus that allows me and you to draw near and go, wow, with, with this same Holy Spirit and with this same words, we can be, as it were, his ambassadors, carrying his word and his purpose and his plan to our world in that same dynamic. And and I think Dr. Luke tries to do this, that what we see in Jesus in the gospel, we're sort of seeing a version of in mm. the church, in the book of Acts. And the two things run together and should perhaps be seen more together than apart. John, I feel like we've been to church. Come <laughs> on. So so we will jump into our next episode with all of you. And let's begin the next episode where we've ended this one with you are my son whom I yeah. love. With you I'm well pleased. Come on. Can't wait.